Hi guys, welcome back, or if it's your first time here, then thank you for joining us. This is the Doula's Guide to dot 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 with me, Meg, also known as the Dunkabee Doula. It's a podcast where we talk about all things pregnancy, birth, and parenting. My aim is to share unbiased information alongside a bit of friendly chit chat to ensure that you head into parenthood feeling confident and excited for what's to come. If you're new to the podcast and would like to know more about me, then go and check out episode one for a little introduction and a big chat and hit the birthing, and then the following episodes with some great birth and parenting preparation. And if you love the podcast, you can now leave me a little tip to say thank you via buy me a coffee. The link is in the show notes. There's a huge thank you there in advance. This episode, I'm going to be chatting about big babies. So I'm going to just get straight into it because I've got such a lot to say. So it seems like almost every week I hear from a client, a friend or a follower who's been recommended a growth scan because their baby is measuring too big. But do we actually know if our babies are too big? No, we do not. No one actually knows the size of your baby until they're born and we can actually wear them. But what do we mean by too big? So when you're being told that your baby is too big or when people are talking about it, what they actually mean is an LGA baby. So large for gestational, large for gestational age. So a large for gestational age baby is any baby who weighs more than the 90th centile. Sometimes this is also referred to as fecal. Oh, I don't know how you say this. <laughs> Fetal macrosomia. I think that's how you say it. My whole accent does not lend well to pronunciation. Um, but anyway, any baby that is above the 90th centile. So centiles, they're a way of tracking your baby's size against the national average. Um, if you are in early pregnancy or even in your second trimester, you won't have a centile graph yet. Um, but sort of, I think it's from 28 weeks onwards so in the third trimester, midwives will start to take your fundal height measurement and your fundal height measurement is the distance in centimetres from your pubic bone to the very top of your uterus. So basically they're just measuring your bump. Um, so they'll take this and they plot it on a graph and the graph shows centile lines so they can sort of measure where your bump is measuring compared to centile. So for example, if your baby is on the 50th centile, they're measuring the same as the median average for their gestation. So they're measuring the exact same as we would imagine the most amount of babies were at this gestation. So anything above the 50th centile is larger, anything below is smaller. Um, obviously, you know, take it with a pinch of salt because different people measure in different ways and things like that, but we're going to come on to that in two minutes. So at these appointments, if your fundal height measuring is above the 90th centile, it'll likely be suggested that you need a scan to check if your baby is actually that big. Or a growth scan may be requested if they are constantly measuring within the same centile range until one appointment where they see a lot of growth that we wouldn't expect. So for example, if your baby is always measuring around the 50th centile and then at your next appointment all of a sudden they jump up to the 80th centile, then that might trigger a growth scan too. Is a fundal height measurement accurate? So not really, not for estimating your baby's size. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us much about the size of your baby. It just tells us the size of your bump because there's not just a baby in there, is there? So there's also, there's water, there's also your placenta, there's some other muscles, there's organs and body parts behind and underneath too. So you could have a really massive bump, but maybe you've just got a lot of water in there or maybe you have a teeny tiny bump and you're just hiding a mighty large baby because maybe different things are organised in different ways. So for example, with my first 
pregnancy my bump was tiny like I didn't even look pregnant until near the end and it, it was just a really small bump and then my baby was eight pound ten which is almost an LGA baby. So a larger gestational age baby is £8.13. My baby was £8.10. So she was right at the top of the centiles. And my bump was just tiny. Um, Fundal height measurement plotting, it can show us how your baby is growing. So like I said above, if there's a large jump up or down the centiles, it's helpful for that in some scenarios. But it can also be influenced by so many different things that that large jump can generally be accounted for. So baby's position in your uterus, that's obviously going to influence how big your bump is if one week they're laying with, they're laying sideways and then they change head to head down, that's going to um, completely change the bump size. Doesn't mean that they're not growing, doesn't mean that they've had a massive growth spurt, it just means that they've moved. And it also depends on who takes the measurements. So different healthcare professionals measure differently because they'll measure from different points. So we have to allow for a margin of human error as well. If you have the same midwife for a few appointments and then you start having a different one, it's probably going to change. Um, there was a study, a 2016 study that was called Diagnostic Accuracy of Fundal Height and Handheld Ultrasound Measured Abdominal Circumference to Screen for Fetal Growth Abnormalities. It's such a mouthful. <laughs> but it looked at comparing fundal height measurement against ultrasound scanning for predicting fetal growth restriction or fetal macrosomia, so large babies. And it stated that numerous studies have shown that fundal height has a poor positive predictive value for identifying abnormally grown fetuses. So it's really not very good at telling us if your baby is small or big. So moving on, let's say that your fundal height measurements are big and they trigger a scan being booked so this isn't always presented as a choice you might be told you need to have a scan and as with everything in pregnancy this is your decision to make you can absolutely decline if you do not feel necessary as we go through this episode I'm going to be talking mostly about what happens if you do have a scan what happens if you are told that your baby is big etc but it's really really important to mention here that you don't even have to go for this scan you can absolutely decline it if you listen to this episode and you find out what you're going to find out, <laughs> how inaccurate it is, things like that. Um, you can absolutely decline this. You might just not want to have it at all because you don't want to get yourself put in a position where things are being sort of suggested or pushed on you because of the findings of this scan. So there are some benefits to accepting a late stage ultrasound. There are also many risks, but in an otherwise healthy, normal pregnancy, there is very, very little evidence to suggest that a third trimester ultrasound scan would be able to accurately diagnose a large gestational age baby, and even less evidence to suggest that these scans can prevent adverse outcomes. So third trimester scans can be useful um, for certain things. Um, so for example, like checking amniotic fluid, checking placental blood flow and function, and they can be helpful to check what position your baby is in. So if your healthcare provider isn't sure and is converse, uh, is concerned that they might be in a transverse lie or some otherwise non-optimal lie, then this is really helpful because if your baby's transverse, it means that they're laying sideways. A baby who is laying sideways cannot get out of your pelvis because there's not enough space they need to be head down and obviously if your baby is transverse they can move um but if your baby is transverse at a very very late stage then it is really helpful to have a scan to double double check this but in many in many many trusts their trimester growth scans are offered hence the word offered to pregnant people for other reasons as well so those with a bmi over 35 people with gestational diabetes or those on other high risk high risk pathways and again 
this is for you to sort of look at the benefits and risks of having these scans and to decide whether you want to accept or not. So what happens at the scan? So sometimes people are offered growth scans and they do not at all think about the outcomes. They just think it's a really nice chance to go and see your baby again. But it's it's not necessarily that. You generally will be able to see the baby. They will show you it. But you're not able to buy photographs or anything like that. It's not like at the 12-week scan where everyone's really excited. Um... The sonographer will work much in the same way as your 12 and 20 week scans. So they're just focusing, but they're just focusing on getting um, measurements of your baby. So it's incredibly difficult for them to get accurate measurements of your baby due to your baby's position in the uterus in the third trimester and how much room they now take up in there. But what they're looking for is measurements of your baby's head, your baby's abdomen and your baby's femur. So the bone of the thigh. And then this will generate an estimated way of your baby at that time i hope you appreciate how much emphasis i'm putting on certain words (laughs) Um, so it'll generate an estimated way of your baby at that point in time um they might show you the screen and talk through what they're doing they might not it just depends on who you see on that day you know all sonographers are different all healthcare professionals are different um when the scan's complete, the sonographer will plot your baby's estimated weight onto your grow chart. So your grow chart is that chart we talked about earlier that they're also putting your fundal height measurements on. They'll put um, your baby's estimated weight on that as well and they'll check to see if it matches up with the fundal height line. You'll then usually be asked to head back to the waiting room while the scan is reviewed by a doctor or consultant. Um, or if everything looks okay, or if they can't check it immediately, then they might just offer a follow-up telephone call. So it completely depends across like different trusts. It differs slightly. If you're not sure, just double check with the midwife who's um, booking the scan for you. If they don't know, then see if you can find out beforehand. On the very, very rare occasion that there are any immediate concerns, so for example, if there'd been extremely restricted growth or there was an abnormal development or problems with the placenta, um, extreme polyhydran... Oh God, I'm not even going to try and say that word. (laughs) Polyhydram... I don't know. I don't know how to say that word. I've read it so many times, I've never thought about saying it out loud. I've written it in the notes, not thinking, how am I going to say that? If you have too much amniotic fluid, basically, is what I'm trying to say, then you will be asked to attend your trust maternity assessment unit or the antenatal day unit um, for sort of further investigation. But this is really, really rare that there would be any immediate concerns. Generally, you'd be able to go home straight away or you'd have to hang around a little bit until you can chat about it. But it's not like a full day appointment. So how accurate are the scans? So... Unfortunately, an accurate diagnosis of large gestational age or macrosomia can be made only after weighing the infant at birth because clinical estimates and ultrasonography have proven to be unreliable. That is basically how we would sum it up and I'm going to put all the references for this um, in the show notes. So it's long been known and accepted that third trimester scans performed after the 32nd week of pregnancy can be up to 15% inaccurate. So 15% is a lot for a scan to be inaccurate because if you think we're measuring in a tiny in tiny increments we're measuring in like pounds and ounces right so this means that a baby who's estimated to be eight pound on a scan could actually be nine pound two or could be as small as six pound eight so if you're having a scan and the measurements estimate that your baby at that point in time is eight pounds because of this margin of inaccuracy this 15 percent margin of inaccuracy you actually could be growing a baby that is nine pound two, which is big, 
Or you could be growing a baby who's £6.8, which is just below average. So <laughs> it's really hard to know. We just don't know. And as discussed previously, um, a baby weighing over £9 is classed as LGA, large gestational age. But we could just be diagnosing babies who weigh just £8, which is completely normal, which is just slightly above average, as having fecal macrosomia. Fetal macrosomia. So we'll discuss the outcomes of this label in a moment, but a 2018 study also found that things like lack of experience and insufficient training and audit in the population of sonographers undertaking these scans can cause even further inaccuracies. When I was researching for this podcast and for a blog that I'm writing, um, a recent study found that only 81% of the scans done between 34 and 37 weeks fell within the accepted 15% margin of error between estimated fetal weight and actual weight. So that's shocking because actually what that's saying is that we accept that there's a 15% margin of error, right? We accept that estimating our fetal weight is generally going to be a bit wrong and yeah, with up to 15% margin of error. But actually a recent study found that only 81% of these scans were falling within that study and that the rest of the people, the rest of the scans that were done, were even more inaccurate than this. So 81% of people were told an estimated fetal growth rate of up to 15% inaccuracy, but then the 19% of people were told an estimated fetal growth rate that was more than 15% inaccurate. And then another systemic review that I found, so this one was called The Accuracy of Ultrasound Estimation of Fetal Weight in Comparison to Birth Rate, found that sort of the mean percentage of error varied. So what, what it found, it's hard to sort of get this across talking about it. So what it found was that they were minus 6.8% inaccurate to up to plus 22% inaccurate. So you could be adding on an extra 22% to your baby's weight through these studies. So to put this into context, if your baby's actual weight was £7, which is the average weight for a full-term baby, a scan could estimate you as actually housing a £9 baby. So this is a difference of a whole £2, and it would also mean that your class is having a large gestational age baby, so above the 90th centile, which comes with a whole heap of repercussions when your baby is actually £7, which is the 50th centile. It's a massive, massive, massive jump. So what are the repercussions? What's the big deal around having a big baby? So if a healthcare provider thinks that you're having a big baby, they will likely want to schedule you an induction. Maybe not straight away, it depends where you are in pregnancy, um, but sometimes it might be straight away or it might just be, you know, usually before your baby would be ready to come if left the heck alone. And of course you can discuss, um, you can decline this like we said at the beginning, but I want to just discuss their reasoning first. So their reasoning for wanting to induce is that having a large baby can increase certain risk factors. So it can increase the risk of short dystocia, postpartum hemorrhage and third degree tear. They're sort of the three that they mainly hone in on. But absolutely paradoxically, having an induction also increases the risk of short dystocia, postpartum hemorrhage and a third degree tear. How does that make sense? We're saying that if you're having a large baby, you've got more of a risk of having shoulder dystocia, of having postpartum hemorrhage, of having third degree tear. So let's solve that by making you have an induction that further increases the risk of the things we're trying to prevent. I cannot get my head around this at all. It doesn't make any sense to me. If they were that concerned, if the risk factors were that big, 
They would be wanting you to have a cesarean. They wouldn't be wanting you to do something that is going to further increase the risk of the things that they're worried about. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. And I know that these risks sound scary, the risk of having a shoulder dystocia, postpartum hemorrhage or a third degree tear all sound really scary, but these things can all be managed, first of all, and also the risk of these things happening is so, so small. It's increased such a small amount that induction doesn't, to me, seem to be the logical sort of solution, but we'll talk about in a minute who should be making these decisions. So let's take an example um, of postpartum hemorrhage. The data is really hard to find around postpartum hemorrhage, but I'm using this because I've talked about the other ones um, in other episodes. So yeah, the data accurately around PPH, um, so postpartum hemorrhage, I'm going to call it PPH, um, does vary from trust to trust, and it can be down to many different contributing factors. So it's not just a large baby that can contribute to having a PPH, um, and sometimes it's seemingly just completely random. It used to be estimated that the PPH rate was around 5 to 10%, but actually it's steadily rising in the UK, probably due to the fact that everyone's getting induced. The fact that they induce people all the time is probably what's contributing to our rising levels of people having postpartum hemorrhages. But that, again, is just my opinion. I cannot state that as a fact. So in 2012 to 13 in the UK, the rate of postpartum hemorrhage occurring was 13.8% of births. A study on macrosomia of 4,000 plus deliveries found that the rate of postpartum hemorrhage in people giving birth to large gestational age babies was 17%. So your risk goes from 13.8% to 17%. So it rises a little bit, it doesn't rise absolutely loads. Thinking about the risk of postpartum hemorrhage with induction, however is generally even bigger. So um, I found a really good quote from the Professor of Midwifery at the University of Western Sydney and Australian College of Midwives, um, Sir Hannah Darlin, who is an incredible um, midwife, well, Professor of Midwifery. Um, but she was quoted as saying that the induction rate is the biggest predictor of having a postpartum hemorrhage. Um, so with some studies finding rates of postpartum hemorrhage in up to 24% of those who are induced. So actually you're probably more likely to have a post based on these based on these statistics you're more likely to have a postpartum hemorrhage if you are induced than you are if you're having a large gestational age baby and then if you're having a large gestational age baby and you get induced the risk is just going to go up even further I could talk about this in relation to tearing or shoulder dystocia, like I said, but the stats are quite similar. Well, the stats actually are even smaller for those outcomes. They're a lot smaller. So the risk of shoulder dystocia, for example, um, is less than 10%, both nationally and with a large gestational age baby. But I've got a um, really important episode coming up on that too. So I won't talk about that now. And then tearing, I've already talked about in a separate um, study. So that's what they're worried about. But their solution just causes those risks to happen even more regularly. So we should probably be taking the recommendation of induction with a pinch of salt. And again, I know talking about these risks is quite scary because if you are having a baby, you're probably now thinking, well, now I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place because if, if I have a big baby, then I'm at risk of having a postpartum hemorrhage. But what's my solution? Because I don't want to get induced because that's going to make it worse. Basically, what you've got to think about is what's balancing out the risk against the benefits. The risk of having a postpartum hemorrhage is still really small. And there are other things that you can do 
that can make you less likely to have a postpartum hemorrhage. So like I said, the risk of this occurring is 13% anyway. The risk of it happening in LGA babies is 17%. That doesn't mean that that's going to happen to you. Because you can bet that there were other risk factors involved in these births. A lot of these people may have had epidurals. Epidurals increase the risk of postpartum hemorrhage, for example. We can never get an accurate picture because there will be other influencing factors and there will be other things that you can do to help prevent a postpartum hemorrhage. So if, for example, you do find out you're having an LGA baby, you think you might be, like I said, we don't actually know, then look at the risk factors and look at how to reduce them. That's probably the best thing that you can do. So like I said, take the recommendation of induction with a pinch of salt. And I'm not saying don't accept. I am not at all telling you to not accept and I am not giving you medical advice. I am just stating the actual facts, the research and the studies that are out there and giving you this information so that you can make a decision. It's a decision only you can make. It's not for anyone else to say. I'm not saying that these things are too risky. I'm not saying that they're not risky enough. Because again, that is not for me to say what's too risky for one person will be completely different to another person and that's fine. That is good. For some people, going from a 1% risk to a 2% risk is enough for you to accept an induction. You're like, that is my cough. 2% risk is too high. But likewise, for someone else, something having an 80% risk of an adverse outcome might still not be high enough for you to change your plans. And that's fine. If we're all making different decisions, that means we're all using critical thinking and we're all tuning into our intuition. And that's why we're all coming up to different decisions. And that's why it's really, really important to highlight this because that's how maternity care should be. It should be based on you as an individual. You should be treated as an individual individual who can make your own choices based on what feels right for you, not based on blanket policies that often have little evidence behind them. So did you know that 82% of the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists guidelines are not based on grade A quality evidence and research? And that 40% of the guidelines are not evidence-based at all. So these things that are being suggested to you might not always be in your best interest. Sometimes they will be. Sometimes they will be. Absolutely 100%. Sometimes an induction would be the best route for you. But not always. So tune into your intuition, do some critical thinking, do some research and think, is this right for me? And I am not anti-medical care, I am not anti-induction, I am not anti-midwife, I am not anti-obstetrics, blah, 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 at all. I think that these things can be incredibly important. I think that they are life-saving in some instances. I'm just saying that you are an individual and your pregnancy is yours, so do not be fear-mongered into making decisions that you are not comfortable and that do not resonate with you and your situation based on a scan, which likely isn't even accurate. Before we went, bleh, before we finish, sorry, I feel like I have um, slipped up a bit <laughs> a few times in this episode because it's something that I'm really, really passionate about and I'm trying to get that across, but I'm also not trying to influence you. I'm not trying to scare you. It's a hard, it's a hard path to follow. I don't want to give you all of this information and sway your decision making. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to sway you any one way or the other. I'm just giving you what's out there. You can go find it yourself afterwards and read it yourself and see how it lands for you. So before we finish, I want to mention one more thing. And that is that you can birth a big baby. 
We're talking about how it might be inaccurate, how your baby might not even be big anyway, but what if they are? So what if they are? You can birth a big baby, you absolutely can. Maybe you decline the scan and you have no idea and your baby does happen to be big. Maybe nobody has a clue that you're growing a large baby, so it's never even an obstacle that comes up for you during pregnancy. But if your baby is big, you can absolutely still have a physiological vaginal birth with no outside interference, no adverse outcomes, and no assisted mode of delivery. People give birth to big babies every single day, and most of them have no idea that their baby was even going to be classed as large. It's just a variation of normal. There will always be small babies. There will always be big babies. Your baby is the perfect size for your body. And your baby knows how to be born and your body knows how to birth your baby. And of course, nobody can ever guarantee you a risk-free pregnancy or birth because nothing in life is risk-free. Stepping out of bed every single day comes with risks, right? It's just a normal part of life, whether you're pregnant or you're not. Everything comes with a risk factor. Everything comes with a different level of risk. But ultimately, birth is safe. Birth is safe and you can do this. Don't let anybody convince you that you can't. And there's so much more I could say on this topic, but I would end up talking for hours and hours and hours. And I know that it's really, really nuanced and it's not always just the large baby. It's other factors too. Like I said, when we're looking at risks, we need to take it with a pinch of salt because even the risks, if we're looking at studies, if we're looking at statistics, if we're looking at research, we don't know every individual person's backstory. And that's why it's important for you to look at things through your lens because you do know your backstory and you can sort of make informed decisions based on that I'm gonna stop there I really hope that this was helpful I've posted a blog post um which is really similar to the contents of this podcast episode some parts of it are probably word for word but it includes a reference section with links to every single study and piece of research that I mentioned in this episode so please do go and check that out Um, if you'd like to read the actual studies or you'd like to use them sort of for future use or for further reference or maybe if you're dealing with this at the minute but do be aware that as with most research around pregnancy and birth a lot of the studies are also talking about stillbirth and some of them are talking about maternal mortality so please only read them if you can handle having that in your mental space right now if not what you can always do is just use the blog if you're sort of wanting to use this research in your midwife appointments um just look at the quotes that I've got in my blog and write those down and then write the source down because obviously you want to have the source but if you don't feel that you can read the source material right now that's more than okay protect your headspace so that concludes this episode on big babies fundal height and their trimester scans I hope it was helpful and I hope it's given you a lot to think about it is quite a tough topic to discuss and I know it's quite divisive too um, and just as I'm telling you to take healthcare professional advice with a pinch of salt you know you can also take what I say with a pinch of salt when making decisions just take what resonates for you and your circumstances Moving forward, if you'd like to discuss this topic or any other aspect of your pregnancy and birth in more detail, then you can book in with me for a power hour, which is a one-off session just for an hour to get clarity on your circumstances for just £30. So I'll pop the info on that in the show notes because I have had such a huge increase in power hour bookings recently. And I think it's because a lot of people are getting sort of confusing advice so let me pop that in the show notes for you if you do have any more questions come out on instagram where i'm at the dungaree doula and please do let me know if you enjoyed the episode be sure to check out the show notes as well for all the links thank you for listening if you enjoyed this podcast please do stick around like follow and subscribe or leave a little review if you don't mind it would be so very helpful speak soon see you next week
Bye.